It's Friday, April 2nd, 2021, and from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, this is the Pennsylvania Legacies Podcast. I'm Josh Rollerson. Well, as natural gas-producing states adopt tighter controls on supply chain carbon emissions, the science of methane detection is advancing by leaps and bounds. These days, gas producers can easily sniff out wasteful and potentially dangerous gas leaks using sensors, infrared cameras, and other high-tech gadgets. In fact, soon you'll even be able to see methane plumes from space through the eyes of a research satellite being built by Environmental Defense Fund. Well, due to all this innovation, many companies are already investing in new technology and shoring up their own leak detection practices because not only does that help protect public health and safety, it also saves those companies money by preventing loss of product. And this is all great. It takes a lot of sophisticated gear to pinpoint trouble spots, particularly when we're talking about a large, modern natural gas operation. The trouble is, some of the industry's worst leaks actually happen at older, smaller operations. These are facilities that, in Pennsylvania, are currently exempt from monitoring and reporting rules that apply to newer wells. Researchers studying low-producing wells in Appalachia recently found that these kinds of problems are indeed widespread. But at the same time, often relatively easy to catch. Sometimes all you need is your own five senses. Some of them were detectable just either by smell or you could hear the emissions. They were audibly hissing. Good news is Pennsylvania is currently in the process of expanding its methane rules to cover existing gas facilities as well as new ones. But the new rules still leave out so-called marginal wells even though those are often among the biggest emitters relative to what they produce. And even though for some of them, leak detection and repair could be as simple as showing up and shutting off a valve. We'll look at the latest research on methane and low producing wells coming up. But first, we go to Lily Jones for an update on conservation, energy, and outdoor recreation news from across the Commonwealth. Governor Tom Wolf has announced plans to produce nearly 50% of the state government's electricity through solar energy, calling it the largest government solar commitment in the United States to date. Seven new solar arrays will be built around Pennsylvania, totaling 191 megawatts and reducing statewide carbon dioxide emissions by an estimated 157,000 metric tons per year. The administration projects the investment will create over 400 new jobs and deliver new tax revenues to communities. Robert Ruth from the Clean Air Council says it's a win on multiple levels. Cutting pollution, creating hundreds of jobs, bringing millions of dollars in investment to local communities. It's great news all around. It's important to build on this progress. The Wolf Administration's solar commitment is just one of a number of renewable projects announced at the state and federal levels in recent months. It follows Allegheny County's recently announced deal to power its government operations through locally produced hydropower, as well as the Biden administration's plans unveiled Monday in Pittsburgh to expand offshore wind power along the East Coast. A new conservation-focused initiative in Philadelphia is encouraging buildings to go dark at night in an effort to save migrating birds. The voluntary program, dubbed Lights Out Philly, began yesterday. Hundreds of migrating birds die each year from collisions with buildings, whose bright lights and reflective windows can be disorienting to birds who are traveling at night. Last October, thousands of birds were killed in a mass collision event in Center City, Philadelphia. This event prompted the creation of BirdSafe Philly, the partnership responsible for organizing the Lights Out program. BirdSafe Philly is urging owners and occupants of commercial and residential buildings to turn off or block as many lights as possible from now until May 31st. A number of iconic buildings have already signed on to participate. 
This program will begin again during fall migration, from August 15th to November 15th. In addition to helping save migrating birds, organizers say switching off the lights can help building owners and residents save money and energy. Finally, attendance at state parks across Pennsylvania remains higher than in previous years, even during the cooler months. According to DCNR, numbers for this past February were about 156,000 higher than the same month last year, continuing a trend that began during the COVID shutdowns last March. 2020 saw a massive increase in park visits and outdoor recreation activity generally. Research conducted by Peck found that trail usage across the state increased by 17%, with some locations experiencing much larger increases. In addition to the sustained high visitor numbers, summer overnight reservations for many state parks are filling up quickly as DCNR eases up on COVID restrictions. Secretary Sidney Dunn announced last week that outdoor in-person programs will resume and occupancy limits for state park facilities will increase effective April 4th. Safety precautions, including masks and social distancing, will still be required. For Pennsylvania Legacies, I'm Lily Jones. In the U.S., the most common type of oil and gas well is known as a marginal, or stripper well. That refers to facilities producing less than 15 barrels of oil, or its equivalent, each day. While Pennsylvania is moving toward more comprehensive emission controls on larger gas facilities, a new study shows these low-producing wells are actually contributing far more than their share to the industry's overall climate impact. Last year, a team from the University of Cincinnati looked at methane and VOC emissions from marginal wells just across the state line from us in eastern Ohio, and they found many venting even more gas into the atmosphere than their total reported output. Well, these findings are important because Pennsylvania's draft rule currently exempts a large portion of marginal wells from leak detection and repair requirements. That's despite the relative ease and cost savings of doing so. I connected with the study's author, Dr. Amy Townsend-Small, on Zoom to learn more about the research and what it means for Pennsylvania. Dr. Townsend-Small, welcome to Pennsylvania Legacies. Hi. Let's start with terminology. Can you help me understand what you mean by stripper or marginal wells? How do you define this category that the research focuses on? Sure. I think the federal government defines it as a well that produces less than 15 barrels of oil equivalent per day. And actually it's defined by the IRS because um, these wells have um, tax exemptions federally and in some states. Okay, so let's focus on Pennsylvania and talk about the presence of low producing marginal wells and their impact on on uh, carbon emissions. How, do we have an idea about how many of these wells are are in Pennsylvania, uh, whether that's measured in absolute numbers or a percentage of, of all the facilities out there? And then how, how does Pennsylvania compare with other states and regions? Well, there's, I think, about 10,000 marginal oil wells in Pennsylvania. So as you know, and probably most of your listeners know, Pennsylvania has been at the forefront of the natural gas boom in the last uh, 10 or 20 years. And it's one of the biggest natural gas producing states because of horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing. But 
in the 1800s, there were a lot of oil wells drilled and a lot of those wells are now either abandoned or marginally producing and Pennsylvania still has almost 10,000 oil wells that are in the zero to one barrels of oil equivalent per day category. So what did your research find about the impact of those types of facilities? How much methane are they are they currently emitting, again, relative to other sources and overall energy produced? So my students and I did a study in Ohio, which is very close to um, where these wells are in Pennsylvania. Um, the wells in Ohio are in the eastern part of the state. And what we found is that Many of the marginally producing oil wells in Appalachia, some of them are venting gas that's associated with the oil to the atmosphere. And they're not monitored or inspected like new wells are. So they're a source of methane to the atmosphere as well as other hydrocarbons that could be toxic to people that live in these areas. And these stripper wells are scattered around the landscape, including in um, parks, people's yards. So um, they could be a health hazard. Some of them are a large source. So we saw some of them that were emitting so much gas that it was audible or you could smell it. So uh, they could be dangerous like a flammable or an explosion hazard. There's certainly a large potential source of methane nationally, even though they are producing an extremely small proportion of oil nationally. I mean, you said some, not all, of wells in this category. How consistent are the emissions across the sample that you were looking at? Or is there a lot of variation there? Yeah, about half of them that we studied, we measured about 50 wells. And about half of them were emitting less than one gram per hour of methane. Some of them were emitting nothing. That pattern is very common across the whole oil and gas supply chain that a few sources are responsible for the majority of emissions. They call it like the super emitter pattern that there's a few large sources that are responsible for most of the methane emissions. So trying to understand the nature of, of the issue that you're highlighting here, what else do these wells, high emitting, low producing problem wells have in common that might explain the disparity with, you know, with other types of facilities? Is it, is it mostly about the age and the condition of the facilities? Does it have to do with the, the methods and the technologies in use or environmental factors? Or what, what is it? It's not necessarily the age. So um, in our study, we did look at um, how long it had been since they were drilled. And we didn't see a correlation with emission rate. It mostly seemed like it was just maintenance. Some of the wells that we had found the highest emission rates, the highest one we saw had a tree had fallen on the wellhead. So that could have been the cause of the high emission rates, or there were just open vents, things like that, that could have been remediated if they were inspected more often, potentially. 
So I think that these proposed regulations, if they were expanded to low producing wells, it could go a long way. And it would also create employment opportunities, you know, for these leak detection jobs. And as I said, I think that there's also for these highest emitters, some of them were detectable just either by smell or you could hear the emissions. They were audibly hissing. You don't necessarily need the, the high-tech detection equipment to pick exactly. up on some of this. Exactly. <laughs> Someone could just go and scope them out every few months and then you know that may even um, take care of the biggest sources. Seems like a pretty low bar. Uh, what else can you tell me about from what the data suggests about possible solutions, specifically what policy changes would make the most impact? Is it about in inspections and you know, leak detection requirements and that kind of thing? Yeah, that would go a long way. Um, we have also worked on the issue of abandoned wells, so non-producing wells in Appalachia and our data indicate that um, plugging wells does do a lot toward mitigating methane emissions. So because these marginal wells are such a small oil and gas source for the United States, they would be a good target for uh, plugging programs as well. Our data indicate they're a larger methane source than unplugged abandoned wells. And they're, they're just such a small proportion of our oil and gas in the United States now that hydraulic fracturing is here that um, I think that plugging them would really help a lot in terms of our methane emissions. Could, could reduce them by 10% or so. When we're talking about mitigating wells that are emitting a lot. Obviously, capping is, is a, an effective solution. Um, what other kinds of interventions might be in play and what are the costs associated with those? Uh, just by way of understanding kind of the, the cost-benefit trade-off for producers for, for the state. I wouldn't be the right person to answer questions about the costs, but in the case of just closing a vent. I don't think that's very expensive. That's like turning a knob, right? Right. You just need a wrench, you know, close the valve and just stop the venting. That would help a lot. As long as someone goes and checks on it regularly, make sure it's not leaking. So as, as a researcher, where do you see the most need for further study? What, what else do we need to know before we can really effectively deal with these problems? Well, it would be great to have more studies of marginal wells in other states. So there was a study in Pennsylvania comparing conventional wells and unconventional wells, comparing methane emissions, but not necessarily marginal wells. So our study is the first one to really look at the extremely low producing wells. And it was only from one state, which is Ohio. So hopefully more studies will come out um, from other regions and either confirm or disconfirm what we found. All right, well, Dr. Amy Townsend-Small from the University of Cincinnati, thank you so much for your time and your expertise today. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here.
That's all for this time on Pennsylvania Legacies. Glad you were able to join us. You can find out lots more about marginal gas wells and their climate impacts via links on the website pecpa.org. That's where you can download or stream all of our past episodes of Pennsylvania Legacies. We provide links and supplemental information to go along with these podcast episodes via the website. So if you want to read the study we've been talking about, you'll find the link again at pecpa.org in the episode description for this edition of the podcast. You can learn more about Peck's work in energy and climate, as well as watershed restoration and protection, trails and outdoor recreation, communities and landscapes, economic development centered on conservation, and much more, all at the website, peckpa.org, and via our social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We'll have another conversation on environmental conservation and energy issues affecting Pennsylvania coming up in a couple more weeks. Until then, for the Pennsylvania Environmental Council, I'm Josh Rollerson. Thanks for listening. Music.